0: Well, hello everybody. This is Jonathan Martin. Welcome back to the ZeitCast. We have had an extraordinary run of guests, and I have to tell you we have a remarkable slate of guests ahead just for the next few days. People like Sarah Bessie, people like my good friend Mark Lowry, people like Joel Houston. A lot of great things happening on the sidecast this week. But I felt like I needed to just talk to y'all for a few minutes. Just me and you. And it somehow feels like the most vulnerable and open I've been yet in one of these. I guess on some level I knew that coming at you five days a week... That inevitably, and that this would be good and right, that only get more and more vulnerable and exposing. But um, you know, there's no room to hide when you're out there that much. So some of this is in real time, and I almost want to apologize in advance if any of this is clumsy. There's a lot that I feel like God is doing in me that I'm processing, but yet I also so value and believe in. How God works while we're in the midst of the process, that it feels important to speak to it now as opposed to waiting to speak to it later when somehow things feel more resolved or something like that. So I'll just jump right in. I've been on this journey. I'm not exactly sure when it started. Some ways I can trace it all the way back to when I was in middle school, when I was in seventh grade, and I randomly end up writing a poem in the Martin Luther King Poetry Contest. And uh, I, can th- I think about my best friend in high school who was black and when her father died of AIDS and how that changed my life. But I feel like in this kind of accidental but very directed way, I've been on this journey around issues of race wasn't exactly something that I, cho- that I chose. It wasn't something I went to school for. It wasn't something I was trained in. It just seems like this trajectory that's been in my life. And the more in the last few years I feel like I've seen different things, and then I've talked about different things that I've seen, and some things have played out in certain ways based on that, it just feels like that's where God is taking me. And I've never known exactly how to articulate that. There's definitely no self-righteousness in it, but just the sense of being on a journey, learning a lot, you know, and wanting to grow and wanting to repent. I think especially as a product of the Pentecostal Church in North America, it was natural in some ways that the more I got connected to my own roots, And to the justice and peacemaking roots of the Pentecostal tradition. To follow that all the way through to the black church. um, Without which the Pentecostal church does not exist. And I've been mentored in so many ways by the black church. And still um, through many things like going to the Proctor Institute at the Alex Haley Farm many times. Uh, where so many of the luminaries the Civil Rights Movement still are just learning so much. And yet there is this way that no matter how much I learn, how much I grow, man, I'm still very much a white guy from the South who grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. And there's there's these certain cultural assumptions that I grew up with and grew up in. And there's th- these things that I know, but there's these things that I don't know. And there are things that I don't know that I don't know, if that makes sense. And that's really come into sharp belief for me recently. I had somebody who pointed out to me something I said in a sermon about a year ago, close to a year ago, I think now. And it was in a sermon where... I told a joke that I heard from one of my theological mentors. Someone who, in full disclosure, has had a profound impact on my life. And I think has, in fact, shaped my theology in many constructive ways. But I heard this mentor of mine tell this joke many times about the Lone Ranger in Tonto. The way the joke goes is... The Lone Ranger and Tonto go out riding the horses and find themselves surrounded by the Sioux, like 20,000 warriors. And the Lone Ranger looks over to Tonto and says, hey, I think we're in really big trouble. What are we going to do? And Tonto responds and says, what do you mean we, white man? And I always like that joke. I think at the time, I understood it to be fairly innocuous. I think I thought it was sort of reversal of the trope, the Lone Ranger, the white guy, the presumptuous white guy. is kind of the butt of the joke. The way my mentor told this, you know, was kind of this whole angle of we have to disentangle the we, especially in terms of the American, in, within the American church, of those of us who are followers of Jesus, from those who are just followers of America, which seemed to me to be in, in like a wonderful spirit. So I preached this sermon at a church in Charlotte. I think there were about 200 people there that day, 250 people maybe, but not a really big church. Where I told this joke, it was a sermon in which ironically, I actually preached at length about what's wrong with us and them thinking and how God calls us to transcend us and them thinking, using the story of the prophet Elisha to illustrate this. But even with that in view, and I actually had directly in view this backdrop of white supremacy and things I've been learning about race. I wanted to preach against those things, and yet was completely oblivious to how this joke even more so could be triggering for a native person where I'm preaching a story in which Elisha is actually surrounded by an enemy army. And keep in mind that, especially in this country, how often texts of genocide in the Old Testament were used to justify the slaughter of Native Americans. And I was just completely oblivious as to how those connections might be made or how that might feel. And my intentions were good, which in some ways to me now feels like the death knell of almost like any (laughs) white guy is, I'm well-meaning and intentions were good. But I had somebody fairly recently who called me out about this joke, who took exception to it, who especially as a Native American felt marginalized that especially when you've got a white guy who's on a stage, who's telling a story about Native Americans at all, but that doesn't take into account the moral seriousness of what's happened in this country. And that does it take into account some of the things I've learned so much more about recently not only the historical atrocities, but especially for Native women, the kind of injustice that's perpetuated to this very second, even under the umbrella of the law, in ways that I find absolutely shocking. You know, um, I think because a lot of my journey has been specifically with the black church and with that kind of direct Connection and correlation with the Pentecostal movement. When I first heard this, as much as I aspire to be a person who is, I want to be humble, I want to be quick to apologize, like whatever, I felt like I heard this with defensiveness. And maybe because of some other things that were going on in my life, kind of in this posture of, if I can use this phrase, wanting to mansplain about it. But yet at the same time, I recognize the Holy Spirit doing all these other things in my life in this moment. I mean, here I am now, a boy from North Carolina who's now in Oklahoma who's learning a lot about the land here. Um, There's an... Absolutely extraordinary Native American leader by the name of Mark Charles, who's agreed to come on the Zycast, or we have on soon, just having recently kind of connected with his work. That's been an influence to me. So um, I had to grapple with this thing a little bit deeper. Why was I so defensive? Why did I feel the need to explain this? I knew on some level. That, given this broader trajectory of what God is doing in my life and things that God's speaking to me, that it just seems right. It just feels right that surely Native Americans and the injustice that has taken place and that continues to take place against Native Americans in this country, surely this is supposed to be part of the story. And yet, there was kind of this, um, this, this catch in my throat. Um, yet there was this reluctance or this desire to want to defend myself or once again my good intentions, which I always think should cover a multitude of sins, good intentions. But a couple things happened to me. One, I had some conversation with some friends that kind of awakened in me again this idea. I don't know where everybody who's listening is on this journey or what you've been thinking about this, but... I've been talking for years now about white supremacy as a spirit. And I do believe white supremacy is a spirit and that the sins of white supremacy are the founding sins on which America has been established. That um, if you were to ask us as America, what is your name? My name is a legion for we are many. There's there's a legion of sins, a host of sins established on this on this, this core idea, this core deception of white supremacy. On some level, intellectually, I know that, right? Or I'm supposed to know that. And yet, there are so many ways in which I haven't really connected with the story of Native Americans, injustice against Native Americans, what that means, if I grapple with that in terms of the Christian story and what it means to be a Christian in America. So part of what happened, I think, is from talking to some friends, I was reminded again of how no matter what your intentions are, no matter what good you might mean to do, that white supremacy is a language. And there's so many ways that it's a spirit that we grow up in and that grows up within us. And I want to be a person who, um, forget anything I talk about like from a stage or anything like that, I want to repent of all that. I don't want any of that in me. And yet, I don't think any of this quite came full circle until I had an experience a few nights ago. I've been a little reluctant to share it because I come from a tradition where honor matters, and I do believe in honoring elders, and I do believe in—I don't know—taking the meat, throwing out the bones, everyone to put that. So uh, I'm not trying to like somehow work out private issues publicly, but this feels important to talk about. Everything I've been saying, put it on the shelf for just a second. And hear this part: I grew up in a church, or spent most of my formative years growing up in a church where my pastor was my role model. When I say role model, he was Michael Jordan to me. If I could have, I would have had posters of him on my wall. He was so influential. And for good reason, I would say. He was the first person coming from my tradition that I ever heard in my life who spoke for spoke from a place of vulnerability. He would tell authentic stories about his own life and his own struggle in a way that gave me permission to be human. And that was hugely important to me and hugely influential to me. I had no idea at that point in my life that I was called to vocational ministry or anything like that. But I knew that the humanity that I heard in those sermons And the vulnerability that I heard in those sermons was powerful. And I knew that on some level I encountered God in that humanity, in that vulnerability. He was my hero. My parents recently moved, and it was the first time they have really moved houses in like over 20 years. And so we were going through a lot of my old stuff. I found all these notebooks that I had when I was in high school where in multiple notebooks I had at the front of binders, I talked about my pastor, what he meant to me. And I found old English essays where I talked about his influence on my life. And I don't have any desire at this point to play any of that down because, you know, without those experiences, without hearing those vulnerable sermons, without hearing the humanity of those, I don't know where I'd be so in a very real way, I'll forever be grateful for that. But i also say this. I had the opportunity to go to work for my mentor when I was in my mid-20s. And at that time, it was a big opportunity. It was a really big church. I was coming from a small, more rural Pentecostal church. It was a very complicated season in my life. Because for one, for all the vulnerability that were in those sermons... The sermons felt, well, they felt sort of Jekyll and Hyde to me, you know? It was like this really radical grace message one week, and the next week I felt like not in like the Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God sermons of old. You're being dangled over the very flames of hell. And I didn't know what to do with that, with these messages that felt conflicting and contradictory. And again, I was a young man. There are all kinds of reasons that that season of my life was complicated. And that a lot of things about that culture, and I'm saying this after years of therapy and looking back retrospectively, felt very toxic to me. There were a lot of things that I internalized. I feel like we're not good for me and, and weren't good for um, the person that I was becoming. But I don't wanna make it about that. I was grateful for the opportunity and I learned from it and I grew from it. And in a lot of ways I think I thought I you know I moved on. And yet even in the initial years after that, there were a lot of dreams I would have about that church, nightmares even, and about this particular person. I just didn't know what to do with all these ways that I seem to have to disentangle some of those mixed messages and that some of the, maybe I should say it like this, some of those quandaries that were posed to me from the dialectic I got in these sermons pushed me deep into this question of what is God really like? Who is God actually? Where can I put my weight down on? Is this ultimately about grace Or is this about me performing? You know, I think it pushed me into some important questions. But now, if I fast forward a little bit, I lived some life. Planted a church of my own. The church grew and did some wonderful things. I imploded. My marriage imploded. Everything in my life was called into question. And... While I revisit some of the spaces that I came from sometimes and still have people in my life who are important to me or in some of the... Um, while I don't visit those spaces super often, like, there's still kind of connections. And so I'm saying all that to say this. I recently, because of some other things going on, end up going back and listening to some... Sermons from the church that I come from. And I heard a number of things that bothered me. I heard a number of things that troubled me. um, That I tried to grapple with in responsible ways. But there was one sermon in particular. Where there was this section. There was this riff. That really got under my skin and under my fingernails where I heard this pastor, who's been so influential in my life in so many ways, this person for whom, for half my life, and all these formative years, I look to to speak for God, kind of goes on this whole rant. And in that rant, he was talking about liturgy. And that is exactly the intonation that he used liturgy how any spirit-filled person won't be content with liturgy dead dried up religion some prig preacher 80 year old Oregon player by the way i heard a sermon from his a few weeks before that in which he used the exact same intonation to say liberals <laughs> folks tell me within that church he never gets political but liberals and liturgy particular bite to that phrase and as he's running against liturgy, which you know, as someone who still self identifies as a Pentecostal, but has come to see the power and presence of Christ profoundly and specifically through the Eucharist, through the Lord's Supper, through communion, and has been on this liturgical journey, I've been all around the world, and I would say one of the key things I feel like the Holy Spirit is doing in our time is that even and perhaps especially among Pentecostal and charismatic Christians, I feel like there is a renewal, a revival, if you will, a return to the table of Christ because that's specifically where I believe the power of the gospel is found, the humility, the core of the message, what ancient Christians were about, liturgies that are, in fact, older than any of us are. But he's railing about the liturgy. And in the midst of railing about the liturgy, he also rails about Women who go into these churches and decide, I want to buck the system and be a preacher. I'm not exaggerating that intonation either. I want to be a preacher or a prophetess. And now all of a sudden it's all thrown into a bundle. Women preachers. and Liturgy, the mark of people who have somehow fallen away from the Holy Spirit. For those who are familiar with my story, you know that the person who's most shaped my life and faith is Sister Margaret Gaines, a Church of God, missionary to Palestinians, a profound preacher, teacher, who so shaped me, and her witness. I carry that with me every day. She's been gone now for a year and a half or so, two years maybe. But her, not only her, but other... um, women of God, have so profoundly shaped my own story and my own journey. And I'm at a place now to where part of what even drew me to Oklahoma City is I'm surrounded by these really profound, prophetic women preachers. And yes, as a fully Pentecostal people who believe in the power of the Spirit, we're also pretty committed to the rhythm of the liturgy and the rootedness of the liturgy. And as I'm listening to this clip from the sermon, so many things are going on, right? Like on the one hand, because I'm 41 years old now and I'm not a child, there's a part of me that's able to laugh this off a little. There's a part of me that says, this is possibly the most ignorant thing I've ever heard in a sermon. There's another part of me that's really sad because this is a person I've admired. And to hear this person at a slightly older phase of ministry in his mid-60s, there's something about this that feels fearful, afraid, desperate. And yet, somehow misidentifying what needs to be clung onto. All kind of feelings. But I tell you what, there was about a second and half, and a half or so in that in particular, where there was a whole other just flux of feelings that were broken open in me, where for a moment I felt like a, I felt like the 12-year-old boy once again listening to these sermons and feeling like now I'm on the wrong side of them. That everything about my adult life, everything I've become now, everything that matters to me, was dismissed and belittled in a way that simultaneously made me feel small, in a way that simultaneously made me feel enraged, in a way that certainly made me feel dismissed. That's what I felt. Dismissed. Small all the most important things I've got in this journey as best as I can ascertain it in terms of what the Spirit's doing in our time and doing in my life. Somehow none of that matters. And as I was thinking about that, in that really peculiar way that the Holy Spirit has, almost out of nowhere I felt my heart break because I felt like the Holy Spirit reminded me of the person who was bothered by that choke. And the way that I think like intellectually and cerebrally I'd been able to somehow keep at bay, emotionally it just broke open and landed on me. Not that I can understand. The depths and layers of generational trauma that Native American people have experienced but even a sliver of something, what it feels like. To listen to somebody that in your mind speaks for God, that's identified with authority, that's identified with, again, the voice of God, the goodness of God, but to feel belittled, to feel small. The people in the church were shouting. The people in church were clapping. Clapping. And to feel like somehow on the wrong side of that, like all of a sudden I'm in an environment where no one understands this story. No one cares about this heritage. This whole journey has been completely discounted. Somehow, emotionally, that just landed me in a different place. And I began to cry. You know, the, the Holy Spirit is tender, and I felt like the Spirit was tender with me, but I felt like I was shown something in that experience that it was like this glimpse of what this person must have felt to be listening to a sermon from someone that they identifies as being a person who speaks for God and to feel dismissed, to feel belittled to feel small I have a lot of thoughts about that now Part of what I feel like is happening is that, you know, um, there is a bit of a break in some ways from some of the people and places where I come from. I think that's okay, and I think that's good and right. I don't think that particular person I'm referring to is some kind of a spiritual father to me, and I don't say that with any animosity. I just don't think that's real. And I think there's just an honesty in owning that I think there's an honesty in owning the fact that at this point in my life, that the fact that I'm no longer preparing people to be ready for Jesus to come and beam them up in a spaceship to take them out of what was happening, but rather for a God who wants to renew and restore all things, puts you in a very different story in some ways. I'm all right with all that. But I think the thing I found most heartbreaking is that for as much as my intentions may be good and as much as I want to do the right thing, just how much I feel like I've missed in terms of this unique, particular, powerful native witness. This witness to the land. This witness to how God has been always at work in the land. You know, Paul talks about, in Romans 8, how the creation itself will be set free from its bondage and decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. How the whole creation is groaning in labor pains until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. The creation is groaning and sighing. Who knows more about that groaning and sighing than the people of the land and the people who have been displaced from that land. People have been removed. People have been harmed. People who, like Jesus, crucified outside the gates, pushed outside, marginalized, How much do they have to tell us? How much of that witness do we need? That night when I heard that sermon clip, and I feel like God brought that full circle. Part of what those tears meant for me was I realized just how much yet I still need to repent. To repent of a lot of things to repent of presumptuousness, to repent of pride, certainly to repent of white supremacy, which is a culture, a language, it is the air in that we all breathe, it is the sea in which we all swim, these things that are deep embedded in our bones. You know, um, I maybe I'm wrong here, but I imagine that at least in the kind of state I heard my former pastor in, then these objections are—if objections be brought to things he was saying, there'd be a kind of doubling down, yeah, you know, for people who are triggered. I just think at this point in my life, I feel like the spirit of the gospel is so antithetical to that in every way. The spirit of the one who takes on the cross—that humility, that difference, that. Spirit that calls us to place the needs and the concerns of our brothers and sisters above our own. It's always calling us to a place of deeper repentance. That's the spirit I want to live in. That's the story I want to live into. And in the midst of all that, I just felt myself very exposed. That despite all my good intentions and all the things that I have learned, there's so much i am not learned There's so much I'm still getting wrong. So I'm saying all that simply to say this. If I have any Native friends who are listening right now, I'm really sorry that I told that joke. It's not a joke I would tell again. And I feel in my bones, I feel convicted. Because I feel like... um, as part of this broader journey that I'm on and the Church Capital C is on, I feel like we have so much to learn from you. And I hope that some of that will be exemplified even in some of the guests that we'll have on this podcast. But I'm ready to learn. I'm ready to stretch. I'm ready to grow. I'm ready to be challenged. I'm ready to repent. I'm ready to make some things right. And I want to trust the future with a God that I'm committed wants to make all things right and wants to make all things new, wants to restore and renew where there's been all of this violence and abuse and, yes, trauma. Kind of horrified now to think about friends who had heard something like that from a place of trauma and would have felt dismissed or belittled. So I guess I'm saying a lot of things now. But most of all, I want to say I repent. Most of all, I want to say I'm sorry. And I'm ready just in the way that at other points in my life, you know, first it was with um, black friends. And then it was the way that God broke me open through LGBT friends. I feel like this is just another one of those kind of breaking opens where I just feel like um, it has to be the movement of the Holy Spirit that is um, breaking my own head open and my heart open. And as much as, you know, there's a part of that that's always a little scary, you know, that sense of loss of control. It's so, so good to learn. It's so, so good to be instructed. It's so, so good to not have all the answers and not need to have all the answers, to be in a place of um, being taught and being instructed and being able to grow. And that's the place I'm going to live from. That's the place I want to teach from. That's the place I want to speak from. And that's what today's podcast is all about. That challenge that I'm feeling, that conviction that I'm feeling, where I think there's an invitation in all of that to cast aside some things that are old. Maybe this is the height of vulnerability, you know, but I'm a, I'm a divorced person. I don't talk about that a whole lot, but I'm a divorced person. And even the other day, because I do have a really, that we don't talk all the time, I have a really good relationship with my with my ex-wife, and I felt the need in the midst of all these things that were being stirred up to say, hey, I'm, you know, I'm really sorry that I brought you into some of these really patriarchal spaces where some of the things were heard. I'm serious about this repentance business. And it's funny in some ways because I feel like, you know, the way that I was taught growing up when I heard about the cost of discipleship and I heard about repenting and making things right, so much about, of that was about some kind of personal naughtiness, you know, I just think at this point, God has such deeper, wider concerns at mind that aren't about naughtiness, but are about justice, that are about equity, that are about peacemaking, that are about deep systemic things that are wrong, being made right in a way that only the Spirit of God can make right, and that we can only participate in if we're willing to get small and humble, and low, if we're willing to repent. And that's the posture that I'm finding myself in right now. So I hope you hear my heart in all this, and uh, hope you will hear the fruits of this repentance and some of the things that we'll talk about and some of the guests that we'll have even in the days to come. Thanks for bearing witness, Thanks for being around. And I guess the last thing I would just say is, well, you know, I've had a number of guests here lately who've led us in prayers. And I didn't quite envision that for this podcast, really, but there's something I think is so lovely about having that in these kind of digital spaces. So if you permit me, maybe I'll just pray for us. God, I thank you for the ways that you continue to shine your grace and your light on us to reveal to us the things that we did not know before, to make the way plain, to allow your truth to be known, the way that your Spirit does indeed convict us and guide us into all truth. We want to humble ourselves to that Spirit so that we might, uh, and we would pray along with David in the Psalms that you would search us, try us, and know us if there's any wicked way in us. We want not the appearance of righteousness, but we want to be made right with the people around us, with the world around us, with the land itself. So give us the grace of repentance. Show us what it means to live in prophetic hope and in anticipation of the renewal and restoration that is coming. And I pray that for each of us who, because I know many of my friends are like me, fumbling and stumbling along some kind of a journey, would you send us friends, would you send us mentors who would um, open up our eyes and our ears, would you send us the stories that we need to hear and let our hearts be open to be broken by them and to be broken open by them so that we see in the stories of our friends, so that we see in the stories and even in the and the blood that's on the ground, that we would see something of the gospel story and of the Jesus story, where this all must go, where we must all go. If we want to be part of this work of renewal and restoration that you're bringing to the world in our time, open up our eyes and our ears that we might see. Forgive us of our sins both those that are known, those who are conscious, but there's also that are unknown and ignorant. Forgive us, cleanse us, and let us live in synchronicity with that spirit of God, that spirit of love, that spirit of truth that continues to hover over the chaos to bring new life where there has been only brokenness, pain, travail, and chaos make us ready now for new creation. We ask in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thanks for hanging around for another edition of the Zeitcast. Talk to you soon.